We're going to be back in Mark's Gospel again today, so um, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. There are Bibles uh, in the, at the end of the rows, so please feel free to go at the back there. Feel to, free to go grab one if you need a Bible. And we're going to be on page 845 in the church Bibles, um, which is Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to pick up from verse 30. Um, so please do follow along. I'm excited tonight because we are going to be um, baptizing Kalika a little bit later. And uh, this is why we have, it's not just for leisure, this is why we have the paddling pool up here, um, which it, I understand is structurally sound. If not, we're going to have a deluge coming down this way. We um, have been taking a stroll, I would say, through this gospel and uh, wanting to marinate in and chew on the richness and the goodness of all that Christ does and teaches through, through uh, this eyewitness account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to take you to a small incident which has large consequences for our own lives. Uh, we're going to read Mark 9, verse 30 to 37. Uh, this is taking place not long after the transfiguration in which Jesus had been revealed, I suppose is the right word, and and displayed in his glory, and then he'd come down the mountain, and there had been the healing of the boy. And then they move on. It says in verse 30, they went on from there. This is Jesus with his disciples walking along the roads as they did, going from place to place. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let me pray. Father, as we open our eyes, we ask that you'll also open our hearts to understand, not only understand your teaching, but understand the implications, how it touches our lives. And I pray, Father, that the Spirit will be with us this evening, that Christ's words and the intention of his words will penetrate and, and transform the way we think and feel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to speak to you on the, the theme of ambition this evening. And I, I think from the outset that you and I will recognize and agree that this is a, a powerful theme and an important one when it comes to the experience that we all have of life, that it is a theme that, that touches our day-to-day -day existence, and that it's a mixed subject. I would say so because on the one hand, it's fair to say that ambition can be a very ugly thing. It's tainted, and you'll know this in your own experience, you'll, that it can be tainted by pride, that it can be tainted by the desire for glory, the tainted by the desire to have your own name in the spotlight. 
And so much of the conflict that we experience in day-to-day life can be traced back to this inclination of the human heart, can't it? When you think about um, just something as simple as office politics and how so often it can be difficult to trust the people you work with and that there can be a toxic environment in some places, it often comes back to this element, this element of of prideful, selfish ambition. And uh, this is true... At that level, it's true on the world stage as well. Has there ever been a war that wasn't at root um, begun because of man's desire for glory, right? That that is what, that is, that is often the trigger. And so we, we know that there is a, a dark theme there that we need to think about. But on the other hand, it's also complex because at the same time, we're conscious that it's hard to think of any human endeavor that doesn't at some root, and I'm talking about the good things that humanity does and produces, it doesn't, at some level, have an ambitious motive, uh, whether it's invention or business or um, the, so many of the good things that we enjoy in day-to-day life are, are driven by the ambitions that we experience. So we know that this is a complex issue to unravel because there's the evil and there's the good, and it's hard to know what's right and wrong about this particular subject. Now, the reason why we're getting into it is because, of course, you'll, you won't have missed this somewhat amusing and head-scratching moment in the gospel as they're walking down the road, and Jesus, as they arrive at their destination, asks his disciples, what were you discussing on the way? And you can feel the tension in the room as he asks the question, And Mark tells us that they kept silent. No one wanted to volunteer the answer to this particular question because as they'd been walking along, you know, apart from Christ in different groups perhaps, a bunch of them had been having an argument about who was the greatest among them. Now, I don't know about you, when I've I've read this, I've often thought how unbelievably gauche or crass it feels that they would have given voice to those thoughts, that they would have actually had an argument among themselves about who was the greatest among this group of friends, these disciples, the followers of Jesus. And the quickest response that we feel in our hearts is to judge them, you know, to think, to think poorly of them because of their obvious insecurity issues and ambition and all the rest of it. And I just want to offer you a couple of thoughts on that, just to almost give them a little bit of an opportunity um, to explain themselves, I suppose. There are a number of things that had happened, even just in, in, within that day or so, and that, that might have, to some extent, explained this. One of them was that the problem of their inequality had, had arisen. Earlier, you know, not so long before, Jesus had chosen just Peter, James, and John and selected those three from among the twelve to be with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, this is an inescapable aspect of life that as much as we believe in the equality of worth of all people, at the same time, equality as an objective standard is a myth. We are not equal. We are all different. We all have different mix of gifts, and we experience God's favor in different ways in our lives. And the Christian has to accept that God is sovereign, that, he is, that his hand of providence is on our lives in ways that, that, that arranges the circumstances of our lives differently. And yet how easily, when you feel that you've been hard done by, to have feelings of resentment towards others and even towards God himself. And I I suspect that some of that was being stoked up among these disciples because of this experience. There was inequality. Another thing they'd encountered was failure that day. 
You know, the story just preceding this was the incident in which a number of the disciples had been engaged in this, this, um, this attempt to, he- to heal this boy, and they'd failed. And of course, failure elicits a response, doesn't it? Usually, if you're the person who fails, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to cover it up. You want to excuse yourself. You want to posture and, make, and repair your reputation as quickly as possible. Or if it's someone else who's failed, the instinctive reaction of the human heart is to think, well, I could have done a better job than he did or, or she did. I just read um, that towards the end of last year, there was a statistic in the newspaper that said that the majority of Brits, more than 50% of British people, felt that they would do a better job at being prime minister <laughs> than the Prime Minister, which I find an absolutely extraordinary insight into the human heart. None of us are qualified, but we all could do a better job. And, um, and yet that's, this is what failure does. When we see failure, it elicits this, this kind of, this, this argy-bargy of, of one-upmanship and, and posturing and all that kind of stuff. So there was inequality, there was failure, and here's the other key thing. There was also success. These men, remember, Jesus' his popularity has blown up, and, and the, the anticipation is that he will in the near future, ascend to be king of the nation and and lead them in a kind of rebellion against Rome, and these 12 men will be at his side. And whenever you encounter success in life, so often the the accompanying feeling or emotion or response is one of swelling pride, isn't it? And so what I'm trying to say to you is I think that these guys were primed for this kind of eruption among them because of their circumstances and because they were human. And therefore, we ought to withhold judgment for a second. But I think apart from all of that, the main reason why we ought to withhold judgment is because if we're honest with ourselves, even if we wouldn't be so brash as to have this discussion out loud, the truth is that there is none of us who is immune from the, the fundamental disease that they were, they were suffering with or struggling with which was the ambitious pride, which expresses itself as comparison. They were arguing about who was the greatest, which is basically a way of verbalizing their comparisons. But the reality is all of us have in our heart the tendency to compare one with another on just about everything in our lives. When you meet someone, you find out what kind of work they do. Are you not to some degree, benchmarking yourself against them. When you find out, when you understand more about their their gifts, skills, talents, abilities, are you not placing yourselves in a pecking order of some kind? It, It goes to our appearance, don't we? Compare body shape and skin tone and how much sheen you have in your hair and all these kinds of things. And there is no part of your existence that isn't vulnerable to this instinct to compare with those around you because of our desire for preeminence, right? And I think this is true of all of us, and we must be honest with ourselves about this fact, because it's so, it'd be so hypocritical, wouldn't it, for us to look at these men and think, what idiots, look at them arguing about who's the greatest, when in reality, these thoughts are constantly turning in our own minds. We just don't give voice to them. We're not that stupid, right? Now, there's a verse, amazing verse in Ecclesiastes 4, where the author says, that I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. He's saying every human achievement that you can point to was motivated by a desire to outdo someone else. 
And I think that is unbelievably penetrating and accurate, that we are, by nature, humans who desire, people who desire to place ourselves above others. And this is the theme that we are wanting to dig into a little bit. The sad truth, of course, is that even in our religious life, even in our spirituality, we're not immune to this. The men were arguing that day about greatness within the kingdom of God. And, you know, I'm a pastor. I know the temptations of ministry. I know that in a day and age such as ours, you know, even if you're you're not a Christian, this might sound ridiculous to you, but within every tribe, there is a temptation to find to, to be preeminent, isn't there? And how even in ministry, in full-time ministry, there can be ugly motivations that lie within the heart. And it's not just if you're in ministry, just in your, in your spiritual life. Whether it's, it's the desire to posture and play act and pose as, a, in, as, as more spiritual as you are, or whatever it is, there's no part of our life that isn't touched by this. And so I want us to think about ambition. I want us to think about what Jesus says to this specific issue. I want to show you a few truths that come out from this passage. And here's the first. And this is the surprising one. Jesus does not condemn ambition. It's an interesting thing if you look carefully at what he says to them. When he asks them, what were you discussing on the way? And they refused to answer for shame. Jesus' question was rhetorical. He actually must have known what they were talking about. Because he then begins to teach them. He says in verse 35, If anyone would be first. If anyone would be first. Now, you would expect the teaching of Christ on this specific issue. What does he want to say to you? What would he say to you and your motivations when you think about the ugliness of ambition as it can express itself? What would he say? And you think Christ's teaching must be that we've got to completely annihilate it. But actually, it seems to me that he doesn't do that. There's a sense in which Christ acknowledges the desire to do something with your life and even affirms it. If anyone would be first, he offers. And that, that, that idea is not just from this passage, of course. When you study the teachings of Jesus, you discover that there are a number of ways in which he appeals to the desire that's innate within each of us to live a life of significance. Now, of course, that's true when you think about the promises of reward that live in the Gospels. When Jesus offers in his parables the idea that that what you do in this life will have some kind of reward in eternity, isn't he affirming your longing to do something important with your life. And I think that, I mean, this, this, this is important to log. The reason why I say so is because we need to recognize at the outset that ambition is a more complex issue than it may at first seem. It may well be that our hearts are des- desirous of glory, that we want to put ourselves in the spotlight, but it may also be that your driving passion in life is to bring glory to Jesus. The same behavior might result from either of those motivations, but one can be entirely self-oriented and the other can be oriented toward Christ. 
And the danger, of course, is that we oversimplify this and give a blanket kind of teaching on the subject. And what would result if we did that? If we just said, no, ambition in all its forms is entirely wrong. What would be the consequences? And I'll tell you what I think would happen. Number one, I think you'd, you'd experience the fact that we'd all be wearing a false humility. We'd all feel the necessity of going around saying how utterly rubbish we are and how useless and what a waste of space our lives are. Because if the only thing that's acceptable is humility, then maybe, you know, like one of Dickens' characters, you just say, I'm an humble man. And you just walk around saying how utterly useless you are. Another consequence of it is, in a sense, it diminishes the glory of God. Because what we're saying is that he is incompetent because he was not able to create creatures worthy of anything, capable of anything. A lot of people think that that's what the definition of humility, that you go through life with this self-berating way of thinking and speaking about yourself as though you are utter waste of space. And I think that diminishes God's glory as much as, 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 as uh, brings you down into the gutter. And also, I think, what with the result of that is it completely squashes any initiative in life. You would feel that it's wrong to step forward in any way because guilt would be associated with the idea that you can do anything. And also, we'd pull each other down. There's a term for this. They call it crabology. And I, there's a little fable that goes with it, whether this is a true account or not. But the story goes, a man was at the end of a pier catching crabs. And uh, if you've ever been crab fishing, it's good fun. You drop a line down to the bottom of the sea with a piece of bacon or some bait on the end, and the crab grabs it and will not let go. You pull him up, drop him in your basket, go again. And you can, you, can wheel, you can get loads of these things in an afternoon if you're in the right place. And so this man was at the end of a pier with a basket full of these crabs, or you know, the bottom of the basket covered in these crabs. And as they're creeping around in the basket, a, a tourist walks up and sees that these crabs are able to climb up the side of this basket. And as they're, they're, they're kind of doing their sideways walk up outside of the basket, he says, excuse me, sir, excuse me. Aren't you worried that they're going to escape? Why why haven't you put a lid on the thing? And he says, oh, don't worry, just watch. And as the crab climbs its way up out the side and just about to make its great escape, a claw shoots up from the bottom and pulls it down. And they call this phenomenon crabology because it's also something which describes human psychology, that whenever one of us wants to do something Everyone else will pull them down. And this is, you've probably seen this in family, certainly among siblings. You might have seen it in your office. You know, how dare you think that you can do something with your life? Down you come. And of course, this is the kind of thing that will result from, any, from this blanket idea that, that ambition of any sort is wrong. The Bible teaches a much more nuanced approach to this whole subject. And I think about passages like this one in Psalm chapter 8, where the psalmist is reflecting on the nature of humanity. And he begins by reflecting on on God. He says, When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So he says, As I contemplate your grandeur that you made all of this, he then asks, he says, What is man? In other words, what is humanity that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The Bible shows us that it's possible, in other words, to have an understanding of the greatness of God 
But at the same time, understand that God has invested within us a greatness and a dignity and even a glory that is donated to us from him. And that therefore it's wrong to have a kind of humility which is so self-abasing that you think that your humanity is somehow rubbish. No, no, God gave you dignity and also purpose, which is why every one of you in your heart of hearts knows I'm created for purpose. There's something I must do with my life. There are things I want to achieve and to accomplish. And some of that, at least, is motivated rightly. Jesus does not condemn ambition. Now, let me add a second thing. Jesus actually then goes a bit further and offers a path or what you could think of as a kind of strategy to fulfill the ambitions in your life. Now, I know that the instinctive way that we'd go about that is, is a wrong way. And I'll just describe to you the wrong path to begin with. It starts with an inaccurate assessment of ourselves. In Romans 12, Paul says um, that by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. He's encouraging you to look at your gifts, abilities, and God-given talents and say, well, I know I'm not that, but I'm not that either. God's made me this way. But of course, none of us are really beyond the tendency to have a slightly inflated view of ourselves in some aspect of our personality or or character or, or competencies. And so as you nurture a sense of your own greatness, what happens next? Well, next then it leads to wrong attitudes. There is a kind of pride that begins to grow and expresses itself often as frustration that other people don't recognize just how special you are. You know, don't they see that I'm wonderful, that I'm God's gift to the world? And of course, as that grows, you know, becomes an anxiety to prove oneself. And ultimately, you know, I'm trying to describe to you the wrong way. Ultimately, what it leads to is self-promotion, the desire to put yourself in the spotlight. Now, there's an amazing story. The Bible's full of stories of people doing this, but one of the most striking is that of David's son. Now, David himself, remember, did not desire or, or, or put himself out to be king. God chose him. God put his hand on David and said, you're going to be the next king. But David's son, you know, he had a bunch of sons, but they grew up full of entitlement, full of privilege, full of the sense of of, of what they were worth and what they were worthy of. And one of them, a man called Absalom, when he reached a certain age, he began to feel resentful against his father, that his father hadn't, you know, either popped his clogs or, you know, abdicated the throne and passed it on to, to him. And so he takes action into his own hands and he, he arranges for his own coronation. He gets some of the military leaders there and he gets some of the, the important dignitaries there and he arranges for his own coronation. And when David finds out what's happened, he has to flee into exile for fear that Absalom might have him killed. And of course, this ends up with a sort of small war taking place within the kingdom as those who are loyal to Absalom fighting those who are loyal to David. Now, Absalom has this interesting little detail that we're told about him, that 
He, his, his kind of defining characteristic was that he had this long head of flowing hair. I mean, he, I've always been suspicious of men with an exceptional head of hair. And Absalom made the most of this. And it becomes in, in the story of Absalom a kind of symbol of his pride and of his sort of belief in himself. But it also becomes his downfall. One day as he's fleeing some of the opposing soldiers on horseback, he's, he's racing through the forest, and his hair gets caught in a tree. The horse leaves him hanging there, and he's vulnerable. He can't free himself, and he ends up being slaughtered by David's men. And you have these kind of stories in Scripture to show us how feelings of pride, the ugly version of ambition, can be nurtured within the heart and give birth to preemptive and self-serving action that is all about you and your glory. But when Jesus addresses these men, he says to them, what? He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Now, this is so characteristic of Jesus So often his teaching absolutely turns everyone's expectations upside down. Because that's how the gospel works, isn't it? What does Paul say about the gospel? That it's foolishness. It's regarded as foolishness and weakness. And yet it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. The message that our Savior had to be brutally killed in order to save us. It's the complete opposite to what we expect It's the complete opposite to what we understand to be a great strategy of success. And yet that is the wisdom of God and that is the power of God. That God chose a man to die in our place so that we could know forgiveness. And all of Christ's teaching seems to show this absolute upside down nature of the way the gospel reshapes our thinking and our actions. He says if you want to live, you've got to die. And here he's saying if you want greatness, you've got to go to the lowest place. He demonstrated it as well, didn't he? Do you remember how on the night before he is betrayed, when, he's, when he gathers his disciples around him, what does he do? What is the lasting memory he wants to leave in their minds of what it means, what his model of leadership is to get those men around him and take off their sandals and wash their feet? A humiliating act that in the, ancient, in the Jewish world, not a Jewish servant would never even be required to do. To his master, it had to be a foreign servant or slave who could wash your feet because it was so demeaning. And yet Christ gets down there, gets in amongst the toes and rubs all the dirt out from those nails and cleans his disciples' feet and then dries them gently. He says, so serve one another. It's utterly shocking and striking, isn't it? This is Christ's way. And he says to you, listen, if you're nurturing desire in your heart. If you have a longing in your heart to do something, this is my prescription for you. Make yourself the lowest. Become the servant. Now, I know that some of you, perhaps the more cynical among you, are thinking, well, isn't this just one other strategy, one other scheme towards finding your place in the world, that you adopt this posture of being a servant in order to, to impress others, in order to work your way to the top. And I certainly think there's a real danger of that, of having an agenda, as it were. 
And I, I think I've encountered this. It's hard to say for certain, isn't it? But you kind of know it when you see it. I think I've encountered it. It's an ugly thing. It's, I would even go so far as saying it's a devilish thing. Because isn't that exactly what we know about the devil from scriptures? That he is one who wanted to take the place of God. And I'll just say a couple of thoughts on that. One is that what Jesus is offering here is not a strategy to manipulate people. But a way of expressing faith in God. If your service is just people-pleasing, just a desire to impress others, just a desire to manipulate others, and that's ugly. But what Christ is saying is, no, he's saying take the lowest place as an act of faith and an act of trust that God is watching. Another thing I would say to this is that Christ would never prescribe an action without being more interested in your heart. Jesus never, you know, this is a constant theme in the teaching of Jesus, isn't it? You thought righteousness was doing this, that, and the other. Actually, righteousness is the inclination of your heart. You thought that it was okay just not to commit adultery. Jesus says, no, you better not even look with lust upon a woman. You thought it was okay not to murder someone. He says, no, you better not even be angry with your brother. This is a constant theme in the teaching of Jesus, and we would, we would be amiss not to see it here. When Christ says to you, if you would be first of all... Uh, if, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is primarily interested in the way your heart is transformed. He wants to see that genuine humility that actually qualifies a person for leadership. Ultimately, the greatest leaders in the world are those who care, who want to serve the people that they lead, the people that they influence, the people that they are responsible for. You think about what it means to be a wonderful parent within a family. A parent has leadership within a family, but a parent who cares only about their own interests is a useless father or mother. They're there to serve, in a sense, even as they exercise authority. And what Jesus does here is he offers us kind of proof, an infallible proof or test of whether your heart is really being humbled under God's hand. And it's this. It says he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And the ancient world was very different from our world. We live in a day and an age in which we worship our children. You know, we run around them and make sure they never trip and fall. And we ask them, what, what shoes do you want to wear today, Johnny? And, you know, how, how would you like to have your hair combed today, Johnny? And all the rest of it. And it's, it's very, is Johnny here tonight? It's no offense to Johnny. Uh, um, it's none of that stuff. But it, it, in the ancient world, kids were regarded as the lowest. You know, if we have a cult of youth in our day and age, they had the opposite sensibility that age brought dignity and it was age that was respected. A child was as nothing. And of course, you know, it's not surprising when you, when there's likelihood that more than 50% of your kids would die, why would you get too attached to them in that sense? And that's another thing. So when Jesus says to them, look, he takes the child in. The, the, the person most likely to be ignored, the one whose interests are most likely to be overlooked in a social context. And he puts the child on his lap, gives the child an embrace and says, and, and says to them, whoever receives a child receives me. He's giving them an infallible proof and test of the state of your heart, which is this. God is interested in how you treat 
those who, who are in a low place. You know, it's one thing to adopt the posture of a servant as a way to gain favor with a boss. And we've got sayings for that kind of behavior, don't we? It's another thing altogether to be the person who is interested in, genuinely interested in the needs of those who are overlooked. And this is what Christ says. If you want to be great within my kingdom, you need to go low. I want to show you one last thing about what Jesus is teaching us here, which is this. I think that ultimately, as we've been wrestling with the question of whether ambition is good, bad, what do we do with ambition? I think ultimately what Christ wants to do is give you a new ambition. I think he wants to give you a new ambition. And I want you to be honest with yourself at this point as we think about this. When you consider the question, what is it that I want to do with my life? How is it that you answer that? When you imagine a future that is your kind of dream scenario, what does it look like? And where do you feature in that story, in that picture? Isn't it the case that for many of us, the future that we imagine has us as the heroes of our own stories, right? And it's obvious when you reflect on it that what we need is is heart transformation. What we need is the the cleansing of our intentions and the motivations and thoughts and imagination and dreams that we have. It's not that God wants to annihilate ambition, but rather that he wants to absolutely transform it. And I want you to pay attention to something that happens in this story. Wonderfully, As Jesus had been walking along the road with his disciples, he'd offered one of his predictions about his future where he'd said that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he'll rise. Jesus is saying very soberly, I am going to be crucified. And it's at that moment, on that particular walk, that these men are having this conversation about who among them is the greatest. And I find within that a profound irony. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go lower. I'm going to offer my life. I'm going to pour out my life for humanity. And all all they can think about is who among them is the greatest. And of course, at the time, the disciples didn't understand what was yet to happen. They didn't know that Jesus would have to die. They didn't understand what he was predicting and explaining to them. One day they would. You ever had that experience where of some, recalling something embarrassing or shameful that you've done in your past and how even just the memory of it causes a flush to rise in your face? I've always been, had a tendency to blush easily. And you know, just the memory of some of the stupid things I've said, even from this pulpit, can... <laughs> can cause me to flush in embarrassment. You keep me awake at night. Oh, I can't believe I said that today. And of course, we all know that experience. Now imagine you're one of these men, reflecting not long in, you know, some, some time in the future after this day had, had happened. On the other side of the cross, on the other side of having seen Jesus killed brutally for them and raised from the dead. And remembering back 
to what they were like on that day, how Jesus was trying to explain to them, I'm going to die for you, and all they can think about is, well, who among us gets promoted? Can you imagine the flush of shame that they must have felt? But also the reconfiguration of their hearts. And this is the power of the gospel. You look at your own life and you think, there's no way I can change myself. I can't give myself new desires. I can't humble myself, try as I might. I'm still, you know, pride is just part of me. But the gospel changes you. I think about, look, one of the great examples of this was the Apostle Paul. If ever there was a man who had a yearning and a passion to attain something significant with his life, it was the Apostle Paul. Because long before he became a Christian, before he was a follower of Jesus, he had already excelled among all his peers, he told us. He tells us. He was the best in his cohort in the pharisaical schools. He was excelling beyond all of his compatriots, and he knew it. He was brilliant. You don't become brilliant without having a yearning, hungering desire for glory. And that was true of Paul. And then he encounters Jesus, and he reflects upon what Christ had done for him, how he was, despite all of his attainments within his faith, he was still dirty before God, but Jesus had taken his sins upon him at the cross. And as Paul reflected on that reality, his heart was transformed. He said things like this in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. You know, you think about the desire to make something of yourself. He says, no, there's none of that. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is describing is the fact that the gospel has the power to break human pride. In fact, it's a prerequisite of becoming a Christian in the first place. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you think you can get there on your own steam, he says, you have no chance. The only way you can ever know God is to be broken, first of all. The gospel does that to you. And Paul is describing that. He says, the life I live, I I no longer live for myself. He says, I live By faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then God begins to impart new desires into you. You have a narrative of your life that's constantly being structured and reconstructed according to the gifts and opportunities that you have. And there's a happy ending that all of us desire for ourselves in terms of where we want to go, what we want to achieve, who we want to be, what we want our life to look like. That's the narrative. We're we're storying creatures. But the gospel has the power to come in, change the narrative of your life. And Paul had experienced that. He said things like this when he was rotting in a jail cell, a Roman jail cell, writing to the Philippian church. And anticipating the possibility of his near execution, he said things like this. He said, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will will not be at all ashamed. In other words, that I won't deny the gospel. 
but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the image of a transformed heart. It's not that Paul no longer has ambition. You know, he, 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 he was a driven man, a man yearning to do something important with his life, and yet all of his ambitions have been utterly transformed by the experience of meeting Jesus and knowing what Jesus had done for him. His heart was completely redirected. And now he says, whether I live or I die is inconsequential so long as Christ is glorified in my body. Paul knew that this Jesus who is preaching was the one who, he says in the next chapter, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. This is something unique in the Christian faith. We don't follow a leader whose leadership and whose authority has been exercised by the force of his command or by the edge of his sword. We follow a leader who had his rightful place, the right hand of the Father, and then took upon himself flesh and then taking being human, went to the cross. And Paul says of this Jesus who we worship, He says, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's saying Jesus has preeminence. And so it becomes a moot point to argue and debate among ourselves about our relative greatness when you're blinded by Christ's all-consuming light, when you see that he is worthy, when your heart has surrendered and bowed to him, you can say with Paul, it's inconsequential whether I live or whether I die, whether God puts me in high places or puts me in low places. It's up to him. It doesn't matter. Jesus is glorified. Jesus is Lord. He has the name that's worthy. And I want to say to you, listen, this is the most freeing truth imaginable. Because when you think about your own desires, we're captive to them, aren't we? And particularly ambitions. Ambitions can be all-consuming. They can corrode you from the inside as you become a slave to your desire, your desire to achieve something, to be something. You work too hard. You sacrifice family. You lay your life down in order to, to make something great out of it. And at the end of the day, what do you have? Just a kingdom made of sand. But when you encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you, you discover that your worth is in his assessment of you. That in giving his love to you in this way, you don't have anything to prove anymore. And that is powerfully freeing. And it means that you can live a life that's actually liberated. It means that you can do something for God. But not because you need to. 
but because it's your great privilege to lay down your life for him. And maybe God will put you in great places and high places, but maybe he won't. And ultimately, you recognize it's not up to me so long as Christ is glorified. And friend, I want to encourage you, you can have that experience of freedom. It may be the case that some of you are not Christian, and you think, well, this all sounds a little bit off-putting. So what, I'm meant to be completely denying myself? And I say, yes, you are. Come to Jesus. He's absolutely worth it. Most of us as Christians, even, we, we, we experience the battles, don't we, of our day-to-day lives. We know that there are all kinds of conflicting and conflicted emotions that we experience that motivate us to get up in the morning. I want to encourage you, even in this moment, we need to come back to the Lord, don't we? We need to confess where our hearts have been corrupted, as it were, by these kind of selfish ambitions and lay them before him. Will you pray with me? I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine in just a moment. And as we eat and drink, we do so with the acknowledgement that Christ served us first. And yet the bread and the wine, as they recall the life given, should bring and elicit from our hearts a response in which we say, Jesus, have all of me. If you sense that there is a response you need to make to God, then just bow your head and pray with me. Father, we know that our hearts are so easily drawn to the desire to be something special. We want to ask that the Holy Spirit will come and just gently expose within our own understanding of ourselves, the ways in which our motives and desires and pursuits are really all about us. So that we can be freed from that kind of ambition. But Lord, replace it with an all-consuming desire to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to perceive again the greatness of his death and the fact that he now has triumphed over death by his resurrection and that he calls us into his kingdom to know a place of dignity, not because we deserve it, but because he lays it upon us. We pray, Lord, that you teach us how to live lives that are liberated from the constant desire to prove ourselves and freed to be mere mirrors reflecting the glory of our Savior.
It may be the case that even now you are aware of a specific area in your life in which you know what uh, the, the writer John calls the pride of man. It's kind of the part of your life that you find most pride in where you say, look, because I have this, because I can do this, then I'm something. We all build our identities upon these things. And it may be the case that you need to confess that to Jesus now and say, Lord, I want to lay this down.